This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is Robbie, and coming up on this episode of the Offscript podcast, it's a new feature for us. We're getting a little nostalgic with this one. When we were young, and today's subject is your first computer. I remember those days. The BBC Acorn Archimedes for me. The Offscript podcast. I came into the office today and I asked you guys what your first either computer or gaming console was. The first device you used to play a video game. And so I've taken each of your three answers and we're going to delve into some of those early consoles. I'm going to start with Rob's today. So he told me that his first sort of device that he used to play video games was the Acorn Archimedes. Wow. And me being from the 1950s. UAE, growing up in the UAE, I had no idea what this yeah. device was. So See, I've gone through a bit of a wormhole trying to dig out the backstory yeah, to this. It does. And it's surprisingly fascinating. Right. So I had, just to give you a little bit of background, while everyone else had Ataris and, and what have you, and they were get, moving towards consoles, George in the 1980s, Greenfield. my dad was a stalwart. He was stuck in a couple of decades prior to that. <laughs> so I essentially had a 1960s computer growing up in a 1980s household. And I got pretty excited when a game was 8-bit. <laughs> I mean... And that is as archaic and as clunky as you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. Hey, but listen. You know what? I would say give George some credit. This was a 1980s device, in fact. Oh, uh, was it? Okay. Yeah. And it actually was spurred on by the BBC that decided that they wanted to develop a program to educate the UK. They oh thought, we're God. a little bit behind the curve. All this, this newfangled computer lingo is happening over in the US and other countries. We're a bit behind the curve. We need to educate people on computers and on programming. So they came up with this program called the Computer Program. Good morning, sir. Oh, good morning. Um, I'd like to buy a computer. Certainly, sir. What did you have in mind? Well, I don't know very much about computers. Perhaps you could give me some advice. Yeah. Well, there's the apple, the acorn, the pear. The banana? Yes. Uh, we have no bananas. Oh. We do have tangerines. Um, what's all this greengrocery we got to do with computers? Well, sir, you know what it says in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. I, I really wanted something electronic. Disc or cassette? No, no, not hi-fi. You know, you'd be happy with a pet. I had really set my heart on a computer. Well, the world of computers can seem a very unfriendly jungle to the uninitiated, but it doesn't have to be like that. During the course of this series, one of the things I should be doing is finding out what ordinary people, non-experts like you and I, need to know about what they call information technology. One thing I know already, the computer revolution isn't happening tomorrow. It's happening now. So George Greenfield... <laughs> watched that and went right sign me up forget entertaining my child I'm getting him an acorn and then he came well here's the thing is that program that we just heard that very 1982 started with kind of some British humour sketch before getting into the meat and bones of it essentially is what instigated your very computer it was the program that came first and essentially what happened was they said they wanted to have this program but hmm we actually have quite a few requirements in terms of the producers and what they wanted to show they thought okay well we need to have certain graphics and sound we need to have speech synthesis we want to be able to connect to certain teletext networks and they looked around and surveyed the market and they said there's actually nothing available that meets our requirements so they made a machine they got in touch with uh, these they sort of put the call out to different computer companies and eventually gave the contract to acorn computers it was a lucrative contact and it went to them to devise a program that would then be suitable 
for this TV show that they wanted to use to educate the masses. So it was actually the idea for the content first, and the computer then was created to support it. So um, Acorn Computers was a Cambridge-based firm. They started in 1979. Initially, they started designing uh, some computer systems that could run what you would call fruit, and I would call slot machines. Um, So that's what they started with. But then eventually, they moved on to a home computer called the Atom, and that's when they got the BBC opportunity. So they needed to develop a successor to the Atom that would eventually become the BBC Micro. Now, when they did develop it, it became the dominant education computer in the UK in the 1980s, which explains yeah. a lot about why George Greenfield well, well, the game's got good. one for you. Oh, I love them. Elite. Oh, my word. You, you sort of manned a spaceship. It was so kind of, it was really out there and quite ethereal. Mm. <laughs> you manned talk a us, spaceship. Talk us through what were the challenges. Oh, was, like, what would you have to do? 2D graphics, but you, you'd kind of map, you'd chart a course around space and you'd go around, you'd stop at these space stations and you'd upgrade your spaceship. There never seemed to be an end to the game. I never completed it. <laughs> But you just spend, you spend hours just pottering around space. Wow. Well, it's interesting you say this because as I was looking into some of the games that we played when we were younger, at least in the 80s, some of the games that were around at that time, they're surprisingly simple in terms of they're very, almost mundane, yeah. some of them. Um, but we'll get into that. First, I want to get into um, this particular device and what's special about it. Now, the guy who is a co-founder of Acorn, Herman Hauser, said the BBC Micro, which they developed just for the program, was twice as fast as the Apple II. It could integrate text and color graphics on the same screen. It had built-in network, which no other computer had at the time. It was really quite advanced for something that they had developed. Um, it, In fact, they then decided to plan the one that you had, the Archimedes. That was the next stage. That was the next device. And they thought, okay, well, we need something more advanced than the CPU processing power that we have. So they thought they knocked on the door of Intel, said, hey, listen, we want to use some of your chips in our new Archimedes computer that we're, computer that we're developing. Intel essentially ignored them wouldn't license their chip to them, so Acorn decided to design its own chip. Now, here's the thing. When they designed this new chip, and it's called the Acorn Risk Machine Chipped, ARM, okay? They used a completely new and progressive design. It ended up being simpler, had faster processing. It was essentially superior to the Intel chip, to the point that eventually they realized it wouldn't overheat devices. So not a big deal when it comes to desktops, but eventually when people were looking at mobile devices, simple things like overheating, Mm. it had specific qualities that made it perfect for mobile devices. So who comes knocking just a couple years later? Apple. I remember these, uh, I mean, I had an Atari, then onto the NES, and we'll, mm. I mean, we'll get to these, but you'd literally, if you played the computer too long, yeah. you'd actually have to stop, switch off, get the cartridge out and blow on it. You, yeah. Trying to actually get the heat down because you wanted to continue playing. I mean, it's bonkers now when you think about that. Yeah, and you so actually had to blow on your computer in order to <laughs> ensure that you could continue to play it. Yeah, like a, a pot of tea that so was too hot. My, my mate had a Commodore sixty four. Now, anyone that had one of those, it whirred. It was like yeah. so loud. He'd have to put a pillow over it so if we were playing it late at night, wouldn't wake up his mum and dad. And again, it would overheat. So the pillow, you take off the pillow after a couple of hours, yeah. and it'd be boiling hot. <laughs> you could almost burn down the house on these computer games and these consoles back in the day. Yeah. Well, this, memories, this particular chip, again, that was developed because Intel wouldn't give them theirs, ended up powering Apple's iPod. It went into Nintendo's Game Boy Advance. Uh, yeah. It ended up the ARM. It ended up in the first iPhone as well. So this chip that became fundamental to decades of essential gadgets and computing all started with the BBC 
giving Acorn a go with a contract because they wanted to put on a program oh, to brilliant. educate their populace. Uh, and this particular company couldn't get a chip from the leading manufacturer at the time, developed their own, and then that chip became sort of a mainstay in computing. That is so good. Three's become four. Group hugs all round. How it is. It is. Three <laughs> hugging in groups all round. Uh, you're in because we're going to be talking about your computer yeah. of choice. We're now going to be talking about the what? The Sinclair, the Sincla- the Sinclair Spectrum. Plus, which Plus two was the model I had. Okay. Yeah. Just describe this device a little bit to us because I have some, when I read about it, I found it quite amusing. Yeah. It was a long, I mean, it was a keyboard <laughs> with a tape deck at the end. And so you didn't use floppy disks. You used you loaded the games up using a, a cassette tape, mm. and it took forever, but it was brilliant. And you plugged that into your TV with a what would have been a like you know the red, white, and black oh, cable. cable. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't remember the name of the cable, but that's Scott that was basically the Scartley. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So that was the setup. So excited um, about a Scart there. I've never. And it, it literally <laughs> loaded. Scott, that's it. It loaded line by line, color, colorful lines on the screen. I remember that, and you had to wait for ages, and then yeah. you played brilliant games like Paperboy and Paperboy um, yes and sense, I seem to remember what's a sensible soccer game the object of Paperboy basically to smash windows yeah paper <laughs> you were oh, you wow. were you were on a bike riding up a, an American street it looked cool and you were throwing the papers out and left to, and right you had to miss yeah. the, you had miss to miss the, the potholes and the dogs and the grates at uh, the side of the road such yeah. a brilliant yeah, space you could invaders lose I remember a game called Barbarian did anyone play I that? I do remember that, yeah. That, that you could play a one-on-one version. You only had two moves, swinging yeah. the axe above your head or <laughs> yes. a chopping motion with the axe, both of which resulted in your I opponent being that. decapitated. I think I played and, that. And uh, there, w- there was a platform version of the game where you could sort of progress through the various different levels right. and then become the sort of leader of the barbarian clan. <laughs> <laughs> Misspent youth in the Greenfield household. Sinclair Spectrum, I'm loving though. Yeah, the Sinclair Spectrum also was unique because we're talking about the acorn Archimedes and BBC and what they were doing. That was priced a little bit higher. It was a little bit less accessible to most people, but it was good for an educational platform. This is all very UK-centric in a sense. Mm. What the Sinclair Spectrum did is it basically was affordable enough because it was described as an unglamorous and flawed piece of equipment by one article that I read today. <laughs> it was the least it was like, glamorous piece of tech yeah, you've like ever seen. Like a rubbery typewriter kind of setup. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of glitchy. It had a way of, you know, the moving character actually would have the colors leak into each other yeah. and they yes, weren't very so yet. you know it just was so imperfect but <laughs> it was also really accessible when you talk about the prices you know the BBC Micro Model B was retailing at 300 pounds that's about 1000 pounds let's say in today's money meanwhile you had the Sinclair priced for just 125 pounds that's a different North right? England yeah, exactly <laughs> England you've got George Greenfield perfectly <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> fat Mike Pry you're getting a second hand yeah. one out of the Dark. car boot <laughs> I don't think Acorn Archimedes was the very definition of lavishness somehow. (laughs) We've just heard it there. 300 quid, your old boy spent on that. Back then, that was kind of a more serious device, whereas what you have with the Sinclair Spectrum (laughs) is it was affordable enough for people not to think twice about handing one out to their teenagers, essentially. When you hand these kind of things out to your teenagers and they've got new technology, what do they do? It had this kind of more cool, punky-style game that people were able to develop themselves. Like because so. it had a typewriter, people were able to code and program their own games. Yeah, that was a big thing about it. I mean, I couldn't figure it out, but I had friends who were <laughs> oh, programming using that, that uh, Sinclair Spectrum. So it really was responsible for fostering this sense of new programmers and people getting into things like gaming and game design and actually becoming on the coding 
end of things, yeah. not just the consumers of it. Yeah. So it's considered to be responsible in the UK for really ushering that through. And we were talking about some of the games that you would play. You mentioned Paperboy, which I love the simplicity of it. The idea that, like, can you imagine a kid today playing a game where they just rode on a bike and tried to get the papers to their subscribers? Awesome. Right? The they other just one. left and right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah. The other one that you mentioned was um, Manic Miner. Now, yes. this was one of those games where there were kind of different levels, and you were the miner, and you had to dodge some objects as you sort of jumped up yes. onto different levels. Play this as well. Let's yeah. get a little sense of what this game was about, and also hear a little bit from its creator. Manic Miner was Britain's first software blockbuster. You played Miner Willy, who had to jump his way through 20 screens of platforms collecting treasure, all to a continuous soundtrack, which had previously been thought impossible to do on the Sinclair machine. It also had a very British sense of humour. When you died, a Python-esque foot descended to crush the hapless Miner. As if that weren't daunting enough, there are also mutant jellyfish and flying lavatories to contend with. Matthew Smith became very wealthy very quickly with the success of Manic Miner and its sequel, Jet Set Willy. But then he disappeared. He stopped writing games and he vanished into video game myth. Uh, for the past few years, there's been a website up called Where Is Matthew Smith? And people have been calling in sightings. According to some rumours, he was planting tulips in Amsterdam. Other people claim to have heard, heard him calling in on radio talk shows or seeing him in the local supermarket. I was 17 when I wrote Manic Mind. From start to finish, uh, from I was in Italy writing, drawing pictures of some levels with some water running down, and I came back and in eight weeks we were duplicating cassettes. I had um, a Tandy TRS-80, but it crashed every time anybody put the kettle on, so <laughs> I had to work at night. Back in the good old days, it would crash when the kettle yeah. was popped on. Just going through some of these things reminds me of the simplicity of yeah. our childhood. Yeah. You know, just like you had to, if you wanted to be a game designer and you were doing it by yourself, 17 years old, we heard there, Matt Smith, mm. who was responsible for Manic Miner, and he was, you know, worried about the electricity basically crashing his device constantly. Like, kids today would oh, not deal with that. No. One step further, I know we're going back to first consoles this was later on but we all remember the dial up internet connection I yeah. would sneak down to try and sneak on my de home desktop mm, yeah. to play computer games and it would be like dee, 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 no yeah. and you Chris get to bed it's <laughs> two in the morning <laughs> dee, 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 dee. dial up internet yeah, yeah there was the no way to be furtive about it yeah of the of early internet of yeah. course well, you'd, you'd meet some really weird people who would probably <laughs> actually be on some kind of list yeah. Yeah. and yet you were just randomly <laughs> having chats with them <laughs> MSN Messenger. <laughs> yeah, the idea that you would just be in a chat room and just speak to strangers yeah, like, for that much time. Yeah. Your way of socialising on a Friday night would be to go and abuse or engage in sort of quite insulting conversation with complete strangers online. What worried about your old sheepers. Right, anyway, that's yeah. all what Rob did at 39 years of age the start of the computer. So where are we all So that now? was the Sinclair Spectrum, which was really responsible for this cool, edgy game design trend that emerged in the UK. And Clive Sinclair, the inventor, I don't know if you've got this, but mm. he is Elon Musk's hero. 
Ah, I didn't yeah, know he that. Got, he got a I Spectrum Plus to say He's Elon Musk granddad. <laughs> <laughs> no, spiritual grandfather. Spiritual. No, he's uh, his inspiration because he did the programming with this Sinclair Spectrum. And so when Sin- Clive Sinclair passed away a little while ago, yeah. um, he thanked him and said he's got 65 million followers because of Clive Sinclair. Oh, wow. It's essentially what he said. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to Chris, who had an Atari. Indeed. I have to admit, I wasn't, aside from he knowing of the Atari, I hadn't heard of any of these devices before today. Oh, really? Yeah, none of them. Oh, what wow. did you have, Zed? Oh, we had a, a, a Nintendo. Oh, the NES. You didn't the have NES. a computer. We had a NES. We did have a computer. We had an Apple. Oh, did you? Yeah, that, in the early days, like uh, early 90s. Wow. Wow. So we're down in Chalfont I mean, St. Giles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're calling the BBC highbrow, and you had an apple with a NES. <laughs> Only about eight people on the planet owned apples in the 1990s. <laughs> Most of them were kind of graphic Barney's, designers. Barney's had two, one in the kitchen, one in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that BBC computer. Oh my god, that was really highbrow. That one. We had an apple, meanwhile. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, you've stitched yourself up now. Well, let's get back to Chris's Atari. We're going to talk about the Atari. Is it two two six hundred, two thousand six hundred? I don't oh, even know how you say it actually. But remember. it was like it had a wood panelled yeah. tape deck, so, and it was it's really considered... an arbitrary what, number, isn't it? Twenty six hundred. Yeah. What does yeah. that even mean? Great question. We need to speak to the guys that developed it. That, that whole design of it was actually very intentional. So when we talk about the wood panel tape deck, part of it was that it was such an unfamiliar thing to bring a gaming console to somebody's home. It was really a pioneer in that sense. So because of that, they came up with the design to be comfortable because that wood paneling was meant to be consistent with your other devices. So it would feel comfortable and not foreign. Like when they originally designed the TV inside a cupboard that you could close. So it that's sat right. nicely in your living room. Yeah. It was actually a part of the furniture. It was part it was, of the furniture. Yeah, yeah exactly. An ornament. Yeah. So it was very much a pioneer in the world of home gaming because obviously you would go out to arcades and you'd play video games. You'd use a quarter. The idea that you could bring it home and play a video game with so, you was just, it didn't exist. It was mind-blowing. Uh, the Atari, of course, changed all of that. So Nolan Bushnell founded Atari in 1972 along with Ted Dabney. They each put in an investment of, get this, $250. Oh. That's wow. it. Within five years, the company was worth $28 million. Wow. About 10 years later, the annual sales reached $2 wow. billion. Wow. wow. This wow. is 1982, okay? So Goodness $2 billion is a whole different figure back then, of course. And here's a little story for you. In 1974, rather unkept teenager... What, described as a sandal-clad hippie walked into the Atari lobby because Atari had developed quite a reputation for itself of being a very cool company to work for. So this is the 70s we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, Silicon Valley in today's day and age where everybody's playing pool and there's free, you know, everybody's wearing jeans to work and there's a certain cool culture. In the 70s, that was really uncommon, but Atari had created that culture um, back then. And so he demanded a job. He was answering an ad in the local newspaper that read, have fun, make money. And he came in and he said he wouldn't leave until he got a job. And it turns out that somebody from the company was brought in to deal with him. He he was told, we've got a hippie kid in the lobby. He says he's not going to leave until we hire him. Should we call the cops or let him in? So they let him in. That person would earn $5 an hour and work as a tech. And of course, that individual was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs found Atari. And that afternoon, he came into my office as though... That was the right thing to do. We always hired for intensity because our products were 
bizarre enough that we could train almost everything else. I put Steve on the engineering night shift, which there wasn't one. <laughs> but I was being a little tricky, because I knew he had a really good friend, Steve Wozniak, who was actually a lot better engineer than, than Jobs was. So I basically got two Steves for the price of one. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with that? Great story. The implication there from Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari Descent, that, you know, he would outsource some of his work to Woz. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and Wozniak was responsible for one of the iterations of Pong, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, you know how Nolan Bushnell there, the founder of Atari, was talking about putting jobs on the night shift? It was rumored. I mean, he explained it as he was trying to get two Steves for one, right? One of the kind of myths around this is that jobs was banished to the night shift because he didn't bathe and he would walk oh. around the office barefoot. Oh. <laughs> and he was yeah. just a bit stinky, apparently. Yeah. So he didn't have clean yeah. feet. Yeah, no, he didn't. <laughs> Me and Steve he wouldn't have passed the first date test with Chris McCarty. <laughs> would have not been dating that much. Uh, Come on, Steve. <laughs> another little piece of trivia. When you think about these games from back in these days, every single game for Atari was made by one person who did everything. You think of how the teams involved today, right? For the person developing the concept, writing the program, making the graphics, the sounds, literally end to end, it was all done by one person. Now, in 1972, Atari announced the release of Pong, which was, at the time, it started as a coin-operated video game before it was something that you could take home, right? And it was taken from the ancient Japanese board game Go Atari and vaguely translates to Hit the Mark is the, na is, um, the name uh, for Atari. But they, they released Pong, and the initial prototype was installed at a local bar, and they take in basically... They kind of um, Frankensteined it together. It took a coin slot from a laundromat. They took a screen from a repurposed television. The quarters would drop into a milk carton. <laughs> and so apparently after the machine went live, Atari got a call from the bar and they said, you know, listen, it's been a week. It's starting to act up. And so when the engineer who built it went to check in on it, they figured out the problem. The quarters had overflown from the milk carton. So, many people. so he actually replaced the container for the quarters with something bigger, a bread pan. So that was the original prototype for the game. But, of course, then they built that home version that connected to televisions that we've been talking Love about. Pong. And there have been so many different variations of it. Pong Double, Super Pong, Quadra Pong. And Steve Wozniak actually pro programmed the prototype of a single-player version called Breakout. And he did it in just a four-day engineering marathon. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 